My name is Kevin Ward. I'm the program director of the Sports Animal Radio Network and ESPN in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm also the sports ministry deacon at the Park Church of Christ in Tulsa. I've been involved in radio sports for the better part of 30 years and have served as a deacon at the park for the past decade and at the Guthrie Church of Christ for many years before that. Suit Up has been prayed about for many, many years, and I believe it is inspired by the Spirit to tell faith stories from people involved in sports. I'm also thankful to the Park Church of Christ for believing in this ministry. After one of the most decorated college football careers ever, Chad Henning's dream of playing in the NFL was put on hold as he had an obligation to the U.S. government to serve time in the Air Force. It happened to be during wartime in the Persian Gulf where he flew 45 missions in an A-10 tank buster. Nothing may bring a person closer to God than your life being put on the line every day. Chad's dream would be realized four years later when he would join the Dallas Cowboys and play in three Super Bowls in his first five years with the team. His story is fascinating, and it's coming up. This is Mitch Wilburn, preaching minister at the Park Church of Christ, proud sponsor of Suit Up. I'd like to extend an invitation to you to join us for worship at the park. We are a Bible-based church that loves the Lord and loves people. We have one service on Sunday morning at 9 a.m., And that's followed by classes for everyone from newborn to 100 years of age. The park sits on a rather large lot near the corner of Garnett and the Creek Turnpike and offers a Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. And Wednesday night we meet at 7 p.m. Our youth have their own building with multiple men and women leading them. And our kids age 1 to 5th grade have their own educational wing that even has its own working carousel and ice cream parlor. And I love both. Kevin, the host of this podcast, is in charge of our sports ministry that goes on all year round with basketball, volleyball, softball, great activities. So come see us at the park on the corner of Garnet and the Creek Turnpike or check us out on the web at parkplaza.org. Listen, I noticed that you were born in, is it Elberon, Iowa? Elberon, Iowa. Good. You did it. You're one of the few people that actually got it right first time out of the box. All right. Well, good for me. Let's, let's see if, well, how many uh, more hits I can get uh, during this podcast. Uh, but I noticed that you also went to high school in uh, Van Horn. So uh, I don't know how far away the two towns are. Maybe they're pretty close to each other. But uh, tell us how you uh, were born in one part of Iowa and then graduated from high school in another. Yeah, my... Uh I was actually born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, but for anybody f- from Iowa or from that part of the country, I grew up in a, on a farm in an agricultural part of the town, so uh, part of the, the state where, well, the whole state's pretty much agricultural, I should say, corn and soybeans. But we uh, consolidated school district, a lot of small towns. Elbron was, at the time, was probably about 150 people population. <clears throat> I lived about, uh, oh, three miles two and a half miles away from there, and I went through elementary school and junior high school and high school and three other small towns that were anywhere from five miles away, 10 miles away, or 15 miles away. So uh, when I was younger, a lot of time on school buses going back and forth, but uh, towns such as Keystone, Iowa, uh, Newhall, Iowa, and I graduated, our high school was located in, in Benton, our Benton Community High School was located in Van Horn. So small, uh, consolidated rural um, school district mm-hmm. and 
had 125 in my graduating class. <laughs> I've got to assume that you probably uh, played every sport there was in high school and, and probably w- were an all-state performer. Yes, I did. You know, my, my two main sports were probably wrestling and football. I was a, actually, I was a better wrestler than I was football player in, in high school. And that's actually my senior year I won the state heavyweight wrestling uh, tournament. And that's what put me on the radar for a lot of schools to start really looking at me from a football perspective. But I played baseball. I ran track. You know, I played basketball in junior high for winter sport. But I pretty much, you're right, did, did every sport. And that's the beauty of growing up in a small community is you have the opportunity to, to play multiple sports and, and get engaged in a lot of different extracurricular activities. Now, we don't have to get into the details, but I'm always intrigued because it seems like guys who are really good wrestlers and also play football, especially if they have some size to them like you did, that that wrestling background really benefits you, especially on the uh, defensive line when it comes to all that hand fighting and footwork. And I I assume, Chad, that you're a proponent of uh, people wrestling and playing football. Most certainly. Most certainly. And I think... I, I live in Texas now, and, and that's, I think, to the detriment of a lot of the programs are uh, the high school football coaches, at least it, it used to be that way, where they only wanted their young men to play, you know, play football. Mm-hmm. Football is it, stick with football, but it is so synergistic with wrestling, at, uh, particularly for the line positions. To your point, the amount of balance, uh, hand-fighting technique, um, the explosiveness, working within a confined, close area, wrestling uh, definitely helps. And I'm a huge proponent that, well, f- for example, you know, one of the things, uh, University of Iowa is well known for putting out a lot of quality offensive linemen into the NFL. And a lot of their kids, linemen, are actually walk-ons on the football team, but they were um, state champion or you know state qualifiers in in wrestling and it's just that that work ethic that drive that complementary skill set that makes them phenomenal football players and you can take a break uh uh when you play football right because wrestling <laughs> is wrestling so much harder right i mean <laughs> yeah, it, it was probably one of the most challenging things i've i ever had to do and and you know in early in my Early years in high school, when I wasn't wrestling heavyweight, I, I had to drop a few pounds to get to a weight class. And as a young man, that that was extremely challenging. So uh, a tight end in high school and recruited uh, at Air Force Academy, I guess, to play tight end as well, where you did at least for uh, one year. Were there other scholarship offers uh, for Chad Hennings besides uh, Air Force Academy? You know, and this is, as I alluded before, that when I won the state heavyweight championship, wrestling tournament is when you know the university of iowa i got nibbles from like iowa iowa state purdue you know just kind of hey we're interested in taking a look at you but when i won that title that's when i had a lot of other schools uh show interest and in, in make offers but by that time i was totally committed and all in to go to the air force academy okay now it, it did you you know envision um, being a pilot at an early age, and that's why you gravitated towards uh, the academy, or or what was it that drew you there? Uh, no, I, I really had no interest. My interest to fly was sparked when I got to the Air Force Academy, but what drew me there was it's on the front range of the Rocky Mountains, uh, 17,000 acres of prime real estate, and they had one of the 
of all the different service academies at the time, they had a really up-and-coming football program, Division One college football program, and that was my goal. I wanted to play Division One, and what really intrigued me about the service academies, particularly the Air Force Academy, was uh, just the math and sciences, the, the challenge, uh, the military uh, aspects, because they really encourage their student athlete or their cadets to be holistic individuals, mind, body, and spirit, and. I wanted to have an experience unlike I would have had if I had gone to a traditional college. Mm-hmm. Or, had you considered wrestling when you were at the academy? I did. I went and I worked out a few times uh, with the team, but to maintain uh, my academics as well as you know, continue to improve on the on the gridiron and then all the other uh, things that were biting for my time, it was I didn't have enough bandwidth to excel and be excellent at it. So I, you know, I made a conscious decision just to stick with football predominantly. What uh, predicated the change uh, on the football field from the offensive side of the ball to defensive tackle in your sophomore year? Like everything in life, out of necessity. <laughs> we uh, on the team at that year after the 1984 season, so 1985. Uh, Chris Funk, who was it was the West Athletic Conference actually defensive player of the year, had graduated at uh, we called it a junk tackle, which was a strong, basically a three technique tackle. Um, went on to go fly jets F 16s later, and so they needed to fill his position. And they thought that due to my athleticism, probably a lot with my wrestling ability, etc., they wanted they needed somebody to, to be able to fill that gap. I mean, it was big shoes to fill. So they challenged me in spring ball, my freshman year or fourth class year and made the, the switch. And you know, I guess the rest is history. Did you go kicking and screaming to the other side of the, of the line? No. Um, you know, I didn't, I was, uh, I was always raised, you know, from my parents, you know, my, my older brother, you know, as well as the coaches that I had in high school, that it, it's a team concept. You, you salute smartly and say, however, I can help the team. You know, yes, coach. Mm-hmm. And I t- went at it with that position, um, you know, not knowing, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm, I'm very glad that I did. But, you know, at the time, is I just wanted to, to be able to contribute to the team, and, and it was the quickest way that I could, you know, get on the field and and contribute. Boy, what a team it was, too, Chad. 12-1, and one, uh, conference co-champions. You beat Texas in the Blue Bonnet Bowl. Final coaches poll released and there's air force academy number five in the country and i gotta think that at that time you probably didn't think it would get any better than that no i couldn't it i really didn't because it's we had beat notre dame um at that point in time four years in a row and that was something for a service academy to do that and to be able to compete to be as you said to beat the university of texas and to be able to compete at that high level for such a small school um it was something special. Now, listen, you can admit this, okay? It's just you and me. When you talk about wanting to fly when you got to the Air Force Academy, I got to think that uh, that need for speed uh, probably didn't really kick in until your uh, junior year in 1986 when the movie Top Gun was released. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it um, it certainly highlighted that. And it... Um, you know, that's the beauty about it, going to a service academy or at the Air Force Academy is you know, the predominant, you know, at the time was they wanted everybody to become pilots of some sort, whether it be a fighter pilot, a tanker pilot, or cargo pilot, or whatever it was. So 
we had a lot of exposure to aviation, whether it be flying um, gliders to flying Cessna 172s. So when you're there, you get indoctrinated, and you get a chance to uh, go to different bases throughout the country, and if not, I mean, for that matter, throughout the world, and see at the time it was the A-10 or the F-16 or the F-15 and uh, or the F-111, and you really you start to just hear the, the roar of those engines kick in and, and on takeoff and the jets that had afterburners kicking it in. It, uh, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so i got to ask you, are you a Top Gun fan? You know, it, it, it was an entertaining movie, Okay, put it that way. <laughs> Being that it's Navy, but there's just certain nuances to it that, you know, as a pilot, you kind of chuckle. And, uh, but it, it makes for good entertainment. Are you, are you anxious for Top Gun 2? I always dread sequels. <laughs> they never surpassed the initial movie, so yeah, I hear you. Kind of with bated breath. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna get back on track here. Uh, so during your junior year, this was 1986, uh, named to first of uh, two all-conference teams, uh, first of two uh, academic, uh, that would have been your junior year, all-American teams, second of three academic all-whack honors, and then your senior year rolls around, and more hardware. Uh, you lead the, the country in sacks with 24. You're unanimous first-team All-American selection. Now, I haven't heard of the Stan Bates Award as the conference's top scholar-athlete. So, Defensive Player of the Year honors uh, in the WAC, uh, Outland Trophy winner as the nation's top interior lineman. So, I got to think your head is spinning. You played in uh, a couple of uh, All-Star games. But, you know, you have this commitment <laughs> that you have to fulfill after you graduate. So what were folks telling you, Chad, about your draft position that where you could have gone had you, you know, not had the commitment, uh, what was supposed to be eight years and ended up only being four? You know, I was being told, you know, you're from just being the All-American Outlet Trophy winner that, you know, projected first round draft pick and, you know, and Gil Brandt, who was the Cowboys Player programs and their uh, and their chief scout and, uh, of, and development director, I guess, had followed me all around through all the different All Star games. He said, "We're you know we're going to take you, we're going to take you." And I said, oh, "Sure, you know, Mr. Brand, I appreciate it." But nobody really knew what to do with me because it's nothing like this had happened. You know what happened with Roger Stahl back twenty plus years before, but you know they they drafted him, but he went on and served his military commitment as as was I, and it's just not something that had happened ever you know since mm-hmm. and um so i i was kind of resigned to the fact that um I, well first of all i'll just say i i wanted i wanted to and, and i knew that i needed to serve my commitment to be the individual of you know virtue and character that that i want to be yeah i wanted to be at the time so my commitment as my commitment was a minimum of five years but i chose to up it to eight years because I wanted to fly jets, and that was eight years after pilot training. So technically, playing in the NFL would would have never been an option for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, saying that there's that that internal strife and cerebrally in my mind, I knew that hey, you're following your commitment. NFL is not an option. But in my heart, um, and I wanted to play. Uh, I wanted to quote unquote see if I had the right stuff to compete at the next level, and which made it you may get into this, you know, as we continue on with the interview, but. I went through pilot training just in an hour and a half in Wichita Falls, Texas, hour and a half outside the Metroplex of Dallas. And, and in the fall, I would get tickets. Gil Brandt would send me tickets to, 
for my buddies and I to go into Dallas and you know watch a Cowboy game. So nice. here I'm sitting, you know, at 50 yard line seats or sideline passes, watching guys in my draft class, which were Michael Irvin and like Ken Norton Jr. play, and I'm thinking, man, that that could be me. That could have been me. Mm-hmm. And it it it, it um, I really had I, I struggled with that. I struggled with that for a long time. But I think that's how God kind of molds us and and allows us to to go through different things in life to to test our metal to test our character and and uh you know for us it gives us opportunities to truly interact and discern who we choose to be as as human beings I appreciate so much Chad what you're saying here about commitment um I've got to ask when did you become a christian and and did you grow up in a Christian household? I grew up in a christian household i um I grew up uh you know, in Iowa, it was a German community, a Missouri Synod Lutheran, um, great family. We church every Sunday, but we'll probably go into this. It, it was more for me of at the time of uh, going through the motions um, as opposed to the relationship piece. Mm-hmm. And um, but I had a, you know, I always had a strong faith and, and a belief system, but. You know, your faith and your belief, you know, isn't really faith and belief until it's until there's some sort of challenge to that. You don't know if it's real or if it's just superficial. And um, I had one of those experiences, you know, later in my life when I was with the Cowboys. And we'll get to that uh, as we uh, go on with in this uh, interview. But, but one of the challenges, uh, Chad, for you had to be flying those jets because I, I don't know. Did you grow any more uh, from your freshman year to your senior year at the Air Force Academy? What what height were you going in, and what were you leaving? I was actually yeah, I was a late bloomer, believe it or not. I went in at six foot four, two hundred and fifteen pounds, <laughs> and I graduated at six six two fifty five. So I grew a couple inches and put on about forty pounds. Um, and that was a problem. Well, if I wanted to fly, of course. I had to yeah. receive waivers for my height and my weight to be able to fly. I was too big for the, they called the it was the Aces Two ejection seat, where they really weren't sure if I, and the initial jet trainer, to see if I clear the tail of the jet if I ever had to eject. So it, um, it was always a challenge, but I, I was fortunate enough to get the waiver and uh, get into pilot training because once you know once you're in, you're in. Yeah. By the way, going back again, and we'll do this a lot, uh, just because your life uh, is so jam-packed. It's it's uh, an incredible uh, story. But uh, you were taken by the Cowboys in the was it the eleventh round? Yeah, you know they don't have eleven rounds anymore. But mm-hmm. I was I was the token eleventh round draft pick. You weren't Mister Irrelevant though. No, I wasn't Mister <laughs> Irrelevant. But uh, I was down there. I was close. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it. Um, no, and, and and for me it was it was an honor. I mean, it was truly an honor for me. I was actually down working out, um, in our field house in the in our weight room, um, staying in shape, and got a phone call from somebody in my squadron that a reporter had called and asked wanted to get a comment about being drafted by the Cowboys, and I was like, did they draft me? I mean, I had no idea. And then it. Um, 11th round draft pick, and I thought, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll start. A, you know, I'm never going to be able to play for him, so I'll, why not? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, fortunately, it worked out. I know you 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 fly in the Persian Gulf a year later. What was going on in 1990 when you were at the United Kingdom? You know, flying out of England w- was awesome. We would fly. First of all, I, f- I flew the A10 Warthog, and for your listeners who don't know, 
about the A-10. The A-10 was originally, it's called the Warthog. And maybe some of your younger listeners that play Call of Duty or some games, it's, it's the big plane that was built around a 30-millimeter Gatling gun called a Gowie Avenger. Wow. It was, um, it was a tank killer. And it was wholly designed for a Central European scenario and a Cold War scenario when the Soviets or the East Germans were crossed in Germany from East Germany to West Germany along the Fulda Gap. And our, our job was, as A-10 pilots, was to basically slow down or, or stall the onslaught of that, all that armor going cross-country. So the whole plane was designed, as I said, around this big gun. And the gunshot depleted uranium tip high explosive incendiary bullets, 4,000 rounds a minute of, of 30 millimeter uh, caliber size. And you, know, you're, you could shoot a tank from you know, almost three miles away and penetrate two and a half inches of armor and, you know, and disable a tank or you know, knock it out with, with just your gun. We had other forward firing ordnance, but we would fly, I could fly all over Germany at 500 feet, and there were certain areas where we could dip down below that. We, I got qualified to fly at 100 feet above ground level, and, and that we fly that low for survivability because of all the anti-aircraft and surface-to-air missile batteries that um, they would deploy in that scenario. So I would deploy every probably once a month for a week. We would forward deploy from England the UK over to Germany to three or four different bases um, every month, and we would fly all over to familiarize ourselves with the terrain and with the, the topography of the area, you know, the different landmarks, and and to train with, you know, the army troops because we would um, be working hand in hand with them from a close air support role, and it, it was awesome. I mean, I, we I had a blast, and then. You know, that was from like 90 through the early part of 91. And, you know, in February 91 is when the you know, the first Gulf War, basically, when we were kicking things off over there. And mm-hmm. I never got a chance to deploy over there till the latter part of 91. So you flew 45 missions. Um, I got to think there were more than one hairy moments in some of those missions. You know, actually, my first, <laughs> it was my initial... Ferry flight, we flew jets from England, a four-ship of A-10s from England to, uh, to Insulik, Turkey. We were deployed out of Turkey, and that's where we flew in the northern part of Iraq. And it was actually on my initial ferry flight over there, just over the Mediterranean, just you know, past the boot of Italy. We were south of Greece, actually south of the island of Suda Bay uh, of Crete. And there was a naval air station, Suda Bay, there where I ended up losing an engine due to uh, a, uh, a really bad oil seal on one of my number two of my right engine, and I had to shut the engine down. And the A-10 is an underpowered aircraft to begin with, so I had to do an emergency divert with my wingman into into Suda Bay, and we ended up getting there a day later. But uh, that was probably the, the, the craziest mission that I flew on, because nobody likes to fly single engine, and particularly over the ocean, and, <laughs> and have to divert. But uh, but the missions that I flew in, in northern Iraq, you know, every mission you'd fly across the Tigris or Euphrates River, you know, you'd uh, you were right there in the you know the Fertile Crescent where you know Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldeans and, and went and God spoke to him to go to the Promised Land, and at you know anywhere from you know a thousand feet, five hundred feet up to five thousand feet and above, it, it was beautiful, beautiful, very scenic country. Wow. And uh, it, it 
was it, it it had a challenge for me you know that it, my faith became more real at that at that point in time too because it, it made the old testament come alive because here we were we're right there and mm-hmm. our base was about 30 miles from tarsus where saint paul was from and where mary was buried and it uh it just if you've never had the opportunity to travel to that part of the world um as a Christian, I encourage people because it just it, it brings the Bible alive. Well, it's on my bucket list. I can tell you that it's something that I really look forward to. I've had plenty of friends uh, from church here in Tulsa that have gone and even brought me back, you know, smooth stones from where you know they thought that that would be an area that David, you know, would have scooped up a, a, a his stones. And uh, it's those kinds of real moments that are really cool. Uh, and and I haven't even stepped foot over there. You mentioned Chad about how your your faith kind of started evolving for you. You know, once you were uh, flying jets and especially in wartime, did you do anything? Did you like carry a small Bible with you? Was there any kind of you know, biblical superstition, if you will. I guess it's probably, you know, uh, not something that most people would, would put, you know, together. But I wonder what you might have done at that time to give yourself a little bit of comfort uh, in those tense situations. You know, it's um, one of my mentors at the Air Force Academy. I remember this, you know, like it was yesterday. He had flown missions in you know, Korea and, and Vietnam. And, you know, he shared with me, he was a retired one-star general, and he'd always share with me, he goes, you know, every mission that before we would fly, we'd always say a prayer, you know, God help me accomplish my mission. You know, I care not what happens to me. Just help me to accomplish my mission. And that had a profound impact on me. It was about, you know, from the mere fact that, you know, it's, it's not about me. It's about service. It's about giving of oneself for something greater than self. And um, so I never had any biblical icons or the mementos or things of that sort but that was a really literally a prayer you know that i would always pray to myself before going is to remind myself why i do what i do Mm -hmm. twice awarded the air force achievement medal uh, a humanitarian award and an outstanding unit award for your actions and service. I mean, uh, you at the you know to this point, obviously, you had led an exemplary life and 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 a really good soldier, obviously. And uh, I know that that would help you in your football career. But now you transition uh, after that's over in 1992. You're a 27-year-old rookie uh, playing in the NFL. Uh, tell us about that experience. Well, it was definitely a baptismal by fire. Because <laughs> I, you know, for the one thing, just from a physical aspect, uh, I, living in England where if it gets above 72 degrees in the summertime, you know, people die over there because they don't have air conditioning in their homes. It's, and then going to Texas, to Austin, Texas, where we were holding training camp, and it would be, you know, in the mid to upper 90s and, you know, above 50, pushing 60% humidity, you know, at times, that I literally thought I was going to die. Um, you know, I was in great physical shape, but there's a difference between being in good cardiovascular shape and then being in football shape. But then also, I'm a sweater, too. I would lose anywhere from you know, 12 to 14 pounds of body weight wow. per practice. <laughs> so here it is, you know, and, and what is it? A gallon of water is just roughly, what, six pounds. Mm-hmm. So I lost basically two gallons of water that I would have to rehydrate and drink in between each practice just to maintain status quo. 
and and it it uh, it was a challenge. So trying to make the team, you know, first of all, moving my family back from England for one, trying to to go through that physical exertion to to play a sport at a higher level of competition that I had left over four years prior, you know, number two stress factor. And then just, you know, meeting new people, learning the occupation, and then um, just trying to figure everything out with life. And I can tell you there are many times where I was sitting in that dorm room at St. Edward's, staring at the cinder block walls thinking, what did I just do? <laughs> but, um, but I knew, you know, it, it was one of those times that I've tested myself, my internal grit and fortitude and trusting God that I was making the right decision. And, you know, it had worked out. And the you know, funny thing is, I guess the one statistic or, or fact in my life that I you know, really think is cool and I'm really proud of is I flew my last mission in northern Iraq in you know, the February-March time frame of 92, and I played in the Super Bowl the same year. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, you played in, in three Super Bowls in four years, and I got to think, uh, because your second year in the league – you know, you guys beat Buffalo in Pasadena. The next year, you you uh, you you beat them again uh, in the Georgia Dome, and then you beat Pittsburgh in '96. I got to think you were thinking, man, this is easy. I wonder how many Super Bowls I'm going to go to, and how many are the Dallas Cowboys, you know, going to end up going to? And needle, you know, little did we know that all these decades later, that Super Bowl in '96 will be the last time that the Cowboys would yeah. set foot on that field. I think I just, it was, you know, again, hindsight, but it was a testament to us, not knowing it at the time, but how special that, that team was and those teams were and how difficult it is to get to that game and, and to win that game. Um, I look back on just the town of the guys, my teammates there in the, in the you know, at the time of the future Hall of Famers that, that, that played for that. But, you know, what really resonated is not necessarily – all the accolades and the statistics, but what really resonated to me was the selflessness of all of the guys in that team that they wanted to win, you know, not just win games, but our whole goal was to win Super Bowls every mm-hmm. year. And, um, and they did whatever it took to, to get back to that game and to play. And if it meant to play a lesser role, then, you know, then they did. And that was across the board from Troy, Michael Emmett, Charles Haley, you know, all the guys. Um, it wasn't about them. And, again, it was very comparable to, you know, the attitude that I had with my fellow fighter pilots when I was in a fighter squadron. It was all about the mission. So did anybody come up with some kind of weird nickname for you when you were with the Cowboys? You know, I, I had, you know, a, a couple, but, you know, Billy Bates, Bill Bates always called me Flyboy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I liked that one. I mean, that, that resonated well. Now, uh, while you're with the Cowboys, um, and given that you know through the the uh, those years uh, with the Persian Gulf War going on and all those missions that you flew, did you come in and, and start anything, or was there any kind of a, a Christian study group or a Bible study group that you either started or participated in when you were with the Cowboys? Yeah, we start. We had our team chaplain John Weber had been around. He was with Athletes in Action and was did a phenomenal job. He was the team chaplain for the Texas Rangers as well as for the Cowboys. And there was always a, you know, chapel services that they would have before games, as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, couples Bible studies and, and uh, you know, player Bible studies that we participated in. And um, 
you know, fortunately, John passed away several years ago, but he was a great mentor and a, and a great man, and he had an impact on not only me, but so many players throughout the years. I got to ask you, you, you brought up couples, um, your wife, uh, Tammy. Where did, where did she enter? Yeah, where, where did, was, she, oh. was she at the academy, or was she oh, from your hometown? Yeah. No, she, uh, she was working in Colorado Springs, and we met just a couple months before I graduated from the Air Force Academy. So, so that relationship was really, doomed. What's that? <laughs> I said, so that relationship was doomed. Yeah, well, again, God had a, a bigger bigger and better plan, but we dated long distance. My whole time I was in pilot training, see each other once a, you know, once a month. Either she would fly down or I would you know, fly up to Colorado Springs, but it was literally love at first sight. And, um, and I knew she was going to be my wife, and, I mean, she felt it was mutual. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... Man, for for a gal that really never got out of Colorado, she was she was born and raised in a small central Colorado mountain town, and she was working in Colorado Springs. And you know, it was funny. Her father, who was an Air Force veteran, also his greatest fear was that she would marry some military member and he would take her away. And sure enough, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, but she, you know, we were married just a couple weeks before we had to actually ship out to to England. So she, her never, you know, spending much time out of the state. Hey, I'm a, honey, I'm a, we're going to a foreign country. We're going to live there for two years. And by the way, I'm going to be deployed half the time, and I'm going to be gone. So, you know, good luck with that. And then <laughs> two years later, we moved back to Dallas, and you know, she was afraid of living in a big city, and you know, there's some of those fears there. And you know, by the way, I'm trying to make the Cowboys too here. So, our our relationship had had been through a lot, and. uh you know, it, it just got better and stronger. You know, I mentioned, Chad, that I, I grew up uh, in several different towns in Texas as a kid back in the 70s and uh, became a Dallas Cowboy fan. Um, Roger Staubach, I played quarterback in, in junior high and high school and, and uh, tried to emulate Roger Staubach in everything, down to the face mask that I wore and the wristbands. And uh, even to this day, to be honest with you, the only NFL team that I can sit and watch an entire game of for some unknown reason. Well, I know what the reason is, but it's the Dallas Cowboys. I, I grew, you know, when you're a kid and you, you latch onto a team, uh, it is interesting that even, you know, I'm 58 years old now and I still just have this thing for the Dallas Cowboys. And I got to think, uh, even though maybe it's not America's team like it used to be, Still fans all over, not only the United States, but all over the world. And I got to think you get recognized a lot. You know, it's, um, well, I get recognized predominantly just because I'm, you know, I'm still 6'6", 270 <laughs> pounds. People think that guy did something to play basketball or he's, 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 he's not a, you know, a professional chess player by any stretch. <laughs> but, you know, I do get recognized, um, particularly due to the success that we had. And we had, you know, I was able to play, I think, football in in Japan twice uh, for the Cowboys. Japan twice, Canada, uh, England, and Mexico on multiple occasions. You know, all over the world. And you know, even when I was uh, flying missions in Turkey, that they, some individuals, Turkish individuals, nationals, knew that um, that I had was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. That I was going to be a professional. You know, profess that I had the opportunity to be a professional athlete, you know, they all knew what the Dallas Cowboys, that star is so recognizable back then, 20 plus years ago, 25 plus years ago. It's amazing. And it, you know, you mentioned it is still America's team. 
Yeah, the only NFL player to serve in the Gulf War. At one time, you had a display in the NFL Hall of Fame. Was that only back in, what, 2005, or uh, is there still a display now? It's on permanent display. I, I donated um, on our glare shield. It, our wives made us, uh, it was an American flag. It was about an 8 by 10 American flag that they had adhesed to a cardboard backing. And we would always put that up there and on the back of it, you know, a little note that we had from our squadron and our wives. And that was something that was special to us. And I donated that and some squadron patches, et cetera, to the, uh, to the NFL Hall of Fame. And that'll, it's part of their uh, military veteran in service display. Now, you have written three books. Tell us about those books. Well, the first one I wrote when I was actually still playing for the Cowboys was called It Takes Commitment. And that was kind of went through moment. It was a uh, biographical, kind of autobiographical book on the concept of commitment. They did a series of these books, and they took a kind of a virtue, and it was from a faith-based perspective on just what we've been talking about, my life and how I've tried to lead a, a life of commitment. The second book I wrote was a book called Rules of Engagement, Finding Faith and Purpose in a Disconnected World. Um, Fourteen years ago, I started a men's ministry called wingman and you know it's men's ministry is is unique particularly in in today's times but um i wanted to write a book that to challenge men about you know using a lot of military terminology and analogy about what it means to be a man of faith and and to be a disciple maker and kind of how life entails in that so that's what that book was about my last book that i wrote was came out a couple years ago called Forces of Character, um, Conversations About Building a Life of Impact. And in this one, um, I had conversations with 10 people that impacted my life all around the concept of, of character. Some names you'd recognize. You mentioned one of them, Roger Staubach. I talked with Troy, Troy Eggman, Jason Garrett, Coach Garrett, uh, Greg Popovich, Coach for the Spurs, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I sat down and had conversations with a survivor of Auschwitz, an international human rights attorney from communist Romania, the CEO for the National Center on Fathering, uh, an astronaut, as well as the a homelessness expert from Dallas, just to show that character is a choice, that it's ubiquitous, it doesn't matter your race, your gender, your, your, uh, your economic uh, well-being in life, that, it, that it's a choice. And... Um, enjoyed being able to participate in all those book projects and I just enjoy chatting with people and hearing their stories and sharing other people's stories in that regard. Chad, when somebody goes online to wingmen.com, what will they find? Wingmen.org. Oh, dot .org, org, okay. Wingmen.org. What Wingmen is, is it's a ministry that our whole thing is creating disciples. We encourage men to form those transparent, Christ-centered, masculine relationships. And what's on there, it kind of tells our mission statement, who we are, the different areas, <coughs> predominantly here, in, we have uh, groups that meet here in the Dallas, North Texas, as well as in Atlanta currently. Um, but it just gives our philosophy on, on men's ministry or a pair ministry organization where we partner with churches to encourage men to, to form those relationships and to replicate themselves and create disciples. It looks to me like since about 1980, you know, 382, since then, man, you have been on the move, uh, and your life hadn't slowed down a whole lot. What's uh, what's in the future for Chad Hennings? You know, this is 
it's just to keep on keeping on. I'm really focused. Um, you know, my business, I have a commercial real estate business based here in Dallas. I have great partners and great teammates in that regard, but you know, that's my tent making opportunity to, to be able to support what I'm doing now. And it's, it's all about, um, encouraging husbands and encouraging men to be the husbands the fathers, you know, the friends, the, the wingmen, um, you know, that God is calling us to be, to impact our culture and our society. And, uh, I think, you know, our, our culture, our nation needs men to stand up, you know, men of faith, strong men of faith to stand up now more than ever and, and not to be spectators sitting on a bench, but to, to actually get in the game. And, and that's, that's my mission and that's my purpose. Well, amen to that brother. Listen, Chad, thank you so much for, uh, Uh, being the subject of this podcast. I really appreciate it. And I know so many people are going to be blessed by uh, this story. Chad, thanks again. And uh, God bless you.